Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Scran. I'm your host, Scotsman food and drink writer, Rosalind Erskine, and this week I can officially say welcome to our special episode of Scran Turns One, as we're celebrating our one year anniversary. I can't quite believe it's been a whole year since we launched this podcast. We now have two series under our belts and lots of fabulous guests. From Michelin star chefs to cocktail curators, we've been spoilt for tips and knowledge of the Scottish food and drink scene. Joining me today to co-host is Edinburgh reporter Caitlin Dewar. Hi Ros, thanks for having me. How are you? Good thanks and I'm excited to reflect on Scran so far. The past six months I've been recording in my flat during lockdown with some road trips in between. Although sometimes I've had some interruptions from my cockapoo Archie. <laughs> How have you found working from home? I've found it a whole mix. There's been days that have been quite challenging and I've got a dog as well so I've had several interruptions from my wee Yorkie Coco. But other days I really enjoy the space of working from home. I miss the the office chatter but I feel a bit used to working from home now. Yeah it's been funny like at first it started off weird but you kind of just can't even remember what the office was like sometimes. I know definitely. Last time you were on the podcast, you joined me in the studio back when we could do that for the wine episode where creator of Fizz Feast, Diana Thompson, was a guest. We also talked about your love for fizzy wine. So, Diana, as a festival called Fizz Feast, is fizzy wine something that you're into? It is. It's my wine of choice. That and white wine over red, I would pick any day. <laughs> so, a Prosecco or a Champagne? Or not well, really? Champagne on occasion, but usually Prosecco. <laughs> I tried one the other day when I was at a dinner at Left Field, mm-hmm. up at Brunsfield, and it was called Le Clerc Briant Brew. And it was like a light fizzy wine, but it tasted like honey. It was amazing. Oh, nice. And I would go out my way to buy it, but I don't know how much it's priced at. Whilst we're on the topic of drinks, what's been your favourite drink in lockdown? My favourite lockdown drink's been an espresso martini. Um, it's not one I drank much of before, but during lockdown we invested in cocktail shakers and glasses and all the ingredients. So we've been making some exciting drinks at home and that's been a favourite amongst everyone in my house. Nice. I'm kind of similar. Mine's been an old-fashioned because being stuck at home has been a good excuse to kind of make some homemade syrups and try new versions of the classics. So yeah, it's gone down quite well. Now we're here to talk about some memorable Scran moments. We did an episode of Scran's Best Bits and Outtakes back in July, and it was short, funny clips or clips that don't quite make the final edit. So go check that out on Entail or wherever you get your podcasts if you haven't heard that yet. This time we're going to take a deeper dive into some of my favourite moments and reflect on them. Basically have a chat and find out what's changed. Firstly, I have to start on my first ever episode of Scran, a whole year ago now, which was a trip to the Christmas market where I checked out what was on offer. What's your name? Javi. And um, where are you from? Spain. And is this your first time at the Christmas market? Yes, it is working, yes. And what is your stall selling? Uh, We sell uh, cheese fondue, and a friend's dish called fricassé, which is basically a scramble uh, with smoked sausage and potatoes. And um, what's, how have you enjoyed the festive market so far? Well, I really enjoyed it because here it's an amazing environment. Everybody from 
all the shops, know each other and take care of each other. Also, you work in fresh air, no outdoors, so it's kind of less stress than what you work indoors. So yeah, it's very intense and stressing, but it's worth it. What's been your most popular dish? Here, uh, the cheese fondue. When the people see the, the sauce dropping to the pot, like, they just can't avoid to have it. Christmas is going to be slightly different this year with the virus. Caitlin, did you enjoy the Christmas markets and will you miss them this year? Some people love them, whilst others find them far too busy and touristy. I'm from Edinburgh. I was born here, brought up here, and I've lived here my whole life. Uh, so I do understand where people come from with regards to it being quite busy and touristy. I think that the Christmas market does have its issues that affect residents, be it local traders being priced out of having a stall or for it maybe being up too long. But personally, I miss it. I don't go that often right through the festive season, but I really miss the sparkle that it brings to the city and enjoying a festive night out with my friends and mulled wine. I just feel like something's missing from the city and it seems a little bit lifeless. I'm not feeling too festive yet and I usually am around this time. Yeah, I'm the same. I get that they're sort of, it can be a bit of a nuisance, like especially in Edinburgh. And I know there were some issues last year, but I'll miss them both locally in Glasgow. Um, not to mention the George Square light switch on, which is like a huge big deal for the city. But also a wee day trip out to Edinburgh to see the market in the gardens, which for some reason, I always find to be a bit more festive than Glasgow, possibly because I'm quite used to the Glasgow ones. Now, my second memorable moment was when I took a road trip to the Craigellachie Hotel and ventured into the Quake Bar, the world's oldest whiskey bar, to speak to the managing director of the hotel, Kevin Smith, and bar manager, Angus Price McVeigh. We got onto the topic of sharing a quake. Here's what we had to say. Oh, I should ask you that. Who would you share a drink from a quake with? <laughs> um, yeah, I should really have thought about this one in advance. That's, um, yeah, yeah, honestly... So many people, so many people that I would, um, I don't know, I would take one of those later quakes and, you know, find a group of friends. In fact, you know, it sounds, it sounds ridiculous, but my, uh, my introduction to the whiskey industry and kind of and working in whiskey was, um, was in Edinburgh, the Scotch Whiskey Experience. And the team that I started with there were, to this day, some of my best friends in the whiskey industry and best friends in the community and have gone on to do great things as well. And I think if I could share a, share a dram with even one of those kind of colleagues that helped me find my inspiration for whiskey then that, that's is absolutely who it would be so caitlin if you had to pick who would you share a quake with i've been having a think about this since since i had a quick look at this and i actually genuinely have no idea who i would share a quake with. <laughs> what about you ross well i was a bit like that kevin put me on the spot and i just sort of said the first thing that came to my head but now i've had a bit longer to think about it I feel like I would like to share a quake with nigel slater as i really enjoy his books and recipes and i think he'd be a great guy to talk to and I still stand by my original answer of Kelly Jones. <laughs> I wasn't sure how much I wanted to expose myself on here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was the same, yeah. <laughs> Next, on our last episode, I interviewed Outlander star Sam Hewan. He plays Scottish warrior Jamie Fraser in the hit show. We heard about his new whiskey, the Sassanach, and we also chatted about Scottish food generally. However, a certain haggis didn't quite make his home comfort list after he had a bad experience on an Australian TV show. But actually, I did a, I was in Australia maybe two years ago doing some press and I was on a, a breakfast morning television show. And somehow in Australia, they'd got a haggis. They presented it to me in the morning, cooked. It smelled so bad. Like <laughs> someone had really bad indigestion. It smelled so bad and I didn't touch it. I was like, I'm not going to eat that. And I think some of the presenters did have a little taste and it didn't look right at all. I don't know what happened to the haggis. I think it was probably sitting in their fridge for a few days and uh, probably gone off. So I hope they weren't. Was it giving you the bulk? 
It was giving me the book, but it wasn't only that. I, I actually thought that one of the presenters had, had sort of uh, let off some uh, some 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 air. I think I thought one of them had farted because it was smelling so bad. So then I'm sitting there pretending like like I can't smell something, but it was it was awful. That still really makes me laugh. I really prize that out of him asking. Was it giving you the ball? About Disney, he he was tiptoeing around <laughs> it, but you just came in there with it. <laughs> yeah, I had to. He was really tiptoeing around it, but um, yeah, I, I've never thought about the fact that probably quite a lot of American fans will not know what the book means. <laughs> but speak. <laughs> but speaking of getting the book, what food just doesn't sit right for you? Good question. I think I'm pretty open to to different foods, but I can't stand the thought of condiments like tomato sauce and mayonnaise. I know it's really weird. I think it might be a texture thing, but any of those all over my food, the, the thought of it just gives me the book. <laughs> what about you? So you can't even have like ketchup and chips? Nah, I just don't have it. I've, I've <laughs> had it when I was a kid, but never since. <laughs> <laughs> the main thing that gives me the book is coriander, which I can't stand. And even the smallest bit of it in food will just make me feel sick. I, on the other hand, love coriander. So <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? It's like one of those Marmite, love it or hate it. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, I have to ask as well, are you a fan of Outlander? I've never watched it, to be honest, and I don't really have a reason other than it's just something that's probably not really up my street. I know people absolutely love it, and when I studied abroad in Texas, I remember meeting some Americans who said that they were visiting Scotland just to go on an Outlander tour, so I'm sure it's, it's worth watching. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like we could have a whole other chat about you studying abroad in Texas, but <laughs> <laughs> to, <laughs> to go back to food <laughs> and foods that make people a bit squeamish, when I interviewed Michelle Rue Jr. back in September at Cross Basket Castle, he talked about his family heritage, which is famous for its legacy in fine dining. However, it didn't start with extravagance. I remember going foraging with Dad, picking our own mushrooms, fishing in the river and, and uh, in the quarries, and, and taking back the fish and eating them, and then gathering snails as well. And all the locals would look at us and say, oh, those bloody foreigners, look at them, what they're doing. They're eating our snails. So Dad would say to them, well, do you want to eat them? Sherry <laughs> <laughs> Jr. talking about his memory of foraging for snails with his dad. Have you ever been foraging, Caitlin? No, I've, I've never foraged for, for any sort of food, but I've tried food with uh, forage products in it, like mushrooms and things. So it's something I would quite like to do at some point, but when it comes to snails generally, the idea of them freaks me out a little bit. But I think I'd probably try them, never say never. The closest I've come to snails is whelks from a seafood market in Normandy and they were actually really nice if you can get over what they look like and like prying them out their shell so it's a bit oh but yeah they taste good. I did um shucking uh, oysters the other week and it must be something, oh, nice. something kind of similar um but yeah the whole t- the whole texture thing was a bit freaky but once you actually managed to do it it was a, it was a really interesting thing to do. Yeah it was that with our beaky. Yes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Yeah, there go. I saw. I saw on uh, Twitter. It looked really good, but yeah, I don't think I would have been able to do it because you do. Did they send you like the gloves and the knife and everything? Yeah, so I got all the products with me. So I got a shucking knife. I had an apron. I had a thing to stand the oysters in, and then there was a demonstration as to as to how to get them out of the the shells, and it was quite difficult. But once you got the hang of it, it almost like turned like a key, and it unclipped itself, and it was interesting. But there was no pearls inside, unfortunately. <laughs> Damn. Well, if, if it all goes south, you could just become like an oyster shucker <laughs> if you've got all the stuff. <laughs> Plan B. This isn't the first time we've heard of foraging food on the podcast. We had some tips from Paul Wedgwood of Wedgwood Restaurant in Edinburgh, 
He tells us how he forages in the forests of Edinburgh. I know this because I've done this with you, but um, you can tell from your website that you forage for ingredients and people can come out and do that with you. But what's your favourite time of the year and what do you most look forward to finding when you're out foraging? Almost at this time of year now, um, where you start getting all the brand new new growth, new shoots. One of the, it sounds, sounds silly, but the, one of the, probably the most thing I get excited about is when I f see my very first nettle top because that means the season's really starting in earnest and everything else is going to start coming up. And um, yeah, I think when you when you get the new growth things like Lesser Selendine, Ground Elder, they taste just so amazing. And is that this time of the year, the, so the natal yes, top, yeah? Just now, yeah, so now I'm coming into spring. Because I feel like with that, people might think oh, autumn's quite good, but is spring is the time like another really good time yeah, to go yeah i mean autumn you have your berries and your mushrooms but i'm more about yeah, the, the sort of greens and salads and herbs at the moment and i'm really going to sort of push really push the wild element now because i think foraging took this this huge thing where it was just everybody was doing it and it's starting to slow down a bit now and so i think i'm going to then start pushing it again because whilst it was really mainstream you know i just kept on going with it but um i, I was one of the first champion in it i think around edinburgh so yeah i'm going to push it back again because it's not something you'd associate with a city but i know that when i came with you it's you didn't drive that far to get to where you needed to go and it was actually a really nice walk as well so yeah, it was nice to know that when you're in an urban area, you can still go out and do it. I, I can just walk down from my house to work a, a mile and I can just do 30, 40 uh, identifications on the way to work. You know, so it's I would, not that we'd pick them, but it's just, it, it does grow everywhere. And once you know, then... Yeah, absolutely. That, you yeah, just, you absolutely. see them all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I think a menu seeds even more appealing when you know how fresh and local the ingredients are. Another guest of yours I enjoyed listening to was Scotsman food writer and picture editor Kat Thompson who told us about how she forages for food. I spoke to Gabrielle and Rob at Birkenshee for this week's episode. What are your thoughts on foraging and forage foods? Oh, I'm a big fan of foraging. There's something uh, so appealing about finding your own food and getting ingredients for free. It's a lovely way to tie in your food with the landscape. I'm very fortunate I stay in the Scottish borders and in a rural situation, so I'm sort of surrounded by woodland and moorland and um, I've really, really been enjoying getting out in the fresh air, sort of seeing nature. But there's loads and loads of different things that you can forage, sort of lots of weeds that you wouldn't think you could eat, you can. So it's a big proviso foraging, you must be 150% confident that you know what you are picking and eating because there are lots of plants that look similar to each other but one is uh, absolutely fine to eat and one is poisonous an example of that can be cow parsley it's very very similar looking to hemlock which obviously hemlock is poisonous but there are loads and loads of sort of weeds if you like that you can eat um, safely so you'll know dandelion you'll know daisy rowan birch there's there's a whole host of things and it, it's great if you have expert knowledge or you can um, sort of look online at various different sort of things. If you, as long as you're confident, you know what you're looking at, you can give it a go and it's free. So it's definitely worth doing. I've done some foraging during lockdown and I've managed to get creative in the kitchen. I had a section called Lockdown Cuisine where I would either make a drink or try a recipe with my favourite food and drink finds. One of my favourite lockdown cuisines was making my mum's vegetarian lasagna. Finally, here's my lockdown meal of choice and a drink that you can try at home. 
Hello and welcome back to my kitchen in Glasgow where I'm going to just talk you through some of my lockdown cuisine, so the food and drink that I've been enjoying over the last couple of weeks. I've moved to the stage of lockdown where I'm trying to recreate favourite dishes that my mum makes. Um, I've not seen her and my dad for quite a long time and we would have had a few family gatherings by now so I'm trying to kind of recreate that here. One of the things that she makes is a really good vegetarian lasagna. So I've been making that quite a lot and I've baked a few batches of these American style oat cookies that we used to make when I was younger. But because I've got quite a lot of drinks lying around, I've added some nice spiced rum and raisins, so they're very good. The veggie lasagna is just really easy. It's an aubergine, courgette, pepper, fry them up, make a really quick and easy white sauce, add some chopped tomatoes, your lasagna sheets if you can find them, and then just bake it in the oven. It's great. I like the sound of that, Roz. Do you recommend trying that at home? Yeah, definitely. It's super easy to make and very healthy. You can easily get your five a day in with that. It's also the easiest way of making a bechamel sauce that I've ever tried. We also heard from celebrity chef Nick Nairn a lot in this series, who provided us with cooking tips. My favourite cooking tip was Nick Nairn's home-cooked steak. Here it is. Now time for a new feature of Scran. Scottish celebrity chef Nick Nairn will be sharing his cooking tips on episodes going forward. This week, he makes our stomach rumble with his tips on how to cook a juicy steak. Two ways to do it. One is pan frying. The other one is barbecuing or char grilling. The pan fried way is steak up to room temperature, pan hot. The temperature of the pan is key. Too cold, it won't work. Too hot, it will burn it. So you start off at the last minute, you season the steak, salt, plenty of freshly ground black pepper. Add a little bit of uh, light olive oil into the pan as soon as it smokes. Add the steak. Make sure they keep the steaks at the edge of the pan so the oil's in contact. With the steak, it's the medium that carries the heat from the pan to the meat. Move them around a little bit, okay, but not too much, just to, just to make sure they're not stuck, okay? About two minutes and then turn the steak or steaks in the pan. At that point, add some butter, let the butter melt. So think about oil for heat and butter for color and flavor. All the time, you're using all of your senses. So you're listening to the sizzle. The sizzle probably tells you more about whether you've got the pan too hot or too cold. And remember, the pan will... All the time, the temperature of the pan will be changing. Okay, so they're going to be getting hotter or getting cooler. So you need to you, know, you need to use active pan management. You need to be if it gets too cold, turn it up. If it's too hot, take it off the heat. You know, look after it, babysit it, husband it, look after the pan. And um, so not two minutes. Turn it again for about a minute, minute on the other side. And again, this depends on types of steak. Use a thermal probe and take the core temperature to between 38 and 40 degrees centigrade. And at that point, you take the steak out of the, the pan, put it on a cold plate, and you leave it to rest for the same amount of time that you cooked it. So if the total cooking time for the steak was seven minutes, rest it for seven minutes. Do not cover it in a piece of foil. Do not put it in a warm place because the steak is still cooking. When the steak comes out of the pan, the outside surface is still really hot. It's around about 100 degrees centigrade. The core temperature is 40, so the heat is migrating from the exterior in towards the interior. So as the outside temperature drops, the interior temperature rises. You've still got the same amount of heat energy in that steak. So it's really important because if you cut into the steak when it's still cooking, when it's still hot, the, the fibers are drunk with the heat and they'll squeeze the juices out. And if you lose the juices, you lose the succulence and you lose the flavor. So rest the same amount of time as you could. Nice. I really enjoy a steak with peppercorn sauce and garlic mushrooms on the side. What's your go-to garnish on a steak, Rod? I like fried mushrooms as well. And again, same as you, served with a peppercorn sauce. I also find with cooking, there's a massive push towards being more sustainable and not being wasteful, which is great. 
whether it be using your pumpkin not just for show, but using the inside of the pumpkin for a super pie. We heard that on the Down on the Pumpkin Patch episode. Or whether that be eating our sea fish more sustainably. We heard this from chef and sea fish ambassador Rachel Green. Not that Rachel Green. <laughs> for me, sustainability is also about thinking about eating the whole fish. So, you know, we often are very good at sort of saying we want um, a fillet of this or whatever, but eating the whole fish adds to that whole sustainability package. So I eat as many, as much whole fish as I, as I possibly can, as I was talking about, whole mackerel, um, that, that sort of thing. The moment you fillet it, you, you, have, you have got an element of waste there. I also like to get creative making cocktails in the kitchen. A particular episode that springs to mind is when I made my own Bloody Mary, but with a twist. Here I am, making it at home. After Rachel's chat about a Bloody Mary, I think I'm definitely going to need to make myself one of them for my lockdown drink this episode. As she said, it compliments um, a crab sandwich really well, but I also think it compliments any kind of seafood. And um, especially if you're a fan of tomato juice, then obviously it's a great one to try for brunches and, and just to... almost feels more like a meal in itself. Um, so it's quite good to have in the morning. You can kind of justify having a wee shot of vodka. Something that I've come across recently which I've really enjoyed is a new launch from a Scottish company called Tongue and Peat and it is a peat smoked tomato juice. You might have read about it on the Scotsman Food and Drink site because I wrote about it I think last month. So there, that's really good. Um, it's not too smoky or peaty um, so that shouldn't put you off. It's just adds like a real depth of flavour to the tomato juice and is great with a Scottish vodka. And I think the one that I had with that when I tried it was a holy grass vodka. Um, so that's, uh, that's what I'm going to be making today to have a nice brunch Bloody Mary to be enjoyed with some seafood. So obviously I'm going to have to grab some ice and get a shot of vodka. Give that a stir. And then we're going to add the tomato juice. And I don't know about anyone else, but I like a little um, shot of lean parents and some Tabasco. Just add a bit of spice and some flavour. And although it wasn't Rachel's favourite thing, I think it, uh, Bloody Mary definitely needs some celery. So I'll just grab some of that. And there you go. A Scottish Smoky Bloody Mary. Cheers. So, Caitlin, if you're having a cocktail, what is your alcohol of choice? I would go for a gin-type cocktail because there's just so much you can do with them and there's so many different types of gin now that with all the different flavours and notes and botanicals, you can make something really completely unique depending on which one you use and it's, it's different for every gin as well. I know one of the other things that has been featured in Scran is the whisky industry and the fascinating Scottish history behind it. It was mentioned by Gordon Dallas, Glencoyne's whisky experiential ambassador on CU's One. He was one of my favourite guests and here's what he had to say. It's part of that immersive experience and I've mentioned this earlier, how Glencoyne has been linked to the rapid rise of Glasgow as an industrial powerhouse through violent vagabonds and Victorian entrepreneurs to modern day pirates. What can you tell us about that? Uh, that whole yeah, it's it's one of the first first things I'll say. I mean, Glengoyne. You cannot talk about the rise of Glengoyne without talking about the rise of Glasgow. Mm. It's fourteen miles away, and as it grows and gets bigger, so does this distillery, or it was a farm first. Um, really, the late eighteenth century is when Glasgow starts to take take shape, and uh, we have 
evidence of people from the camps is feeding the demand that's coming out of Glasgow. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Mugduck Country Park. I have, yeah. I walk my dog there sometimes. So do I. <laughs> so do I. I'll give a shout out to Jessie. I mean, it's lovely. The scones are wonderful. But we, in the course of this research, um, there was a, a book written by a local minister who talked about the Battle of Mugduck Woods. It was a place of illicit, smug, uh, not only distillation, but smuggling. And tonight we'll talk about how you, if you wanted to get your spirit to Glasgow, you could do it yourself, but you could meet some violent criminal types in Mugduck Country Wood and they would take your spirit into Glasgow for you, for a cut. And of course, they would maybe water it down and they would. They were pretty violent and they took on the soldiers in 1818, the Battle of Mugduck Wood, which I hadn't heard about until I did my research. And not only did these smugglers, these violent gangsters from Glasgow, beat the soldiers, but they chased them out of Mugduck Wood. We don't know what became of the soldiers, but it wouldn't have been pleasant. So, you know, when you're next walking your dog, Rosalind, have a, have a look round and think this was... A seething bed of distillation and smuggling nerdy wells. Yeah, so, yeah. It's certainly not like that now. It was clearly a very dangerous game. We also heard about the malt tax riots in 1725 on the How the Malt Riots Led to the Birth of Whiskey episode with the Glasgow Distillery Company. The riots started in Glasgow and spread across the country. Interestingly, he tells us why you should fear the Glasgow women over the men. So the women got together. Uh, and basically formed themselves into what was called Mary Barber's army. Mary Barber, the, the leader of the government strikes. And the women of the city basically formed themselves into almost vigilante groups. And every street that was threatened with an eviction, the women would have their pots and pans ready. And as soon as they saw the, the rent men coming to evict somebody, they'd start banging their pots and pans to alert the whole street. And the women would block the close mouth. They'd block the entrance to the close. And there's tales of you know, the, the rent men and the sheriff's men basically getting bombarded with flower bombs, soup bombs, and bombs containing considerably worse than that. Uh, and also getting chased through the back closes and getting debagged, getting their trousers removed by gangs of women and getting sent running back up the street in their long johns. I mean, as they always say, if you think Glasgow men are hard, wait until you meet their mammies. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have expected anything less, Ros. <laughs> Hearing that clip also reminds me of the strong women in my family who also come from Glasgow, such as my gran, which really warms my heart. Now, since we're on the topic of whiskey, we've had many great tips on this podcast. One of my favourite tasting sessions was from Angus Bryce McVeigh, the bar manager of the Quake Bar at the Craigellachie Hotel. Here it is. If you want to truly appreciate the whiskey, there's definitely a few tips and tricks you can kind of bear in mind. The very first thing that people quite often forget is to just look at the colour of the whiskey. It's time in the cask and the style of cask that it was kept in will affect that colour. Not all the, not all the time, but most of the time, if the whiskey's really bright, pale and kind of a straw-like yellow, you can assume it's probably a bit younger, maybe between five and ten years old, uh, or possibly matured in American oak. Whereas if the whiskey's a much darker, rich colour like this, almost a kind of burnt copper, and um, we can assume the whiskey's older and equally that it might be matured in ex-sherry or ex-red wine casks or something uh, that was European oak. And that gives us some different flavours going forward. The second thing is to, to kind of activate the whiskey a little bit, to swirl it around in the glass, much like you would with wine. Um, you'll see the whiskey coating the side of the glass and slowly dripping down. And although it's not the finest of sciences, the, the rate at which it falls down, I think, can give you an inclination as to maybe the body of the whiskey and um, how viscous it's going to be. If it's going to be a, a really light and sharp whiskey that's quite quick and powerful, 
or if it's going to be something that's much more rounded and oily and smooth and might take a bit longer to develop. And I think the fact that we can achieve that just by looking at a whiskey without even coming close to it is a great start to you know, then go into the next stage, which is, of course, nosing the whiskey, where you can more than likely the most important stage. Our nose picks up a lot more than our mouth. And um, the biggest mistake you see people doing is, is sticking their nose right into the glass straight away, taking a massive breath in and being surprised when all they can smell is alcohol. <laughs> um, there is a lot of alcohol in whiskey, minimum 40%. And so I always like to start quite far out from the glass. And the second I start smelling anything, pause for a minute and think about what that is. If it smells like whiskey, it's always a good start. <laughs> but even if there's anything, I think I worry that people get caught up on not being able to pick out all these individual little aromas and you read the tasting notes maybe on the back of a bottle or, or in a magazine or something like that and I feel like there's no way I can taste all of that. And there probably isn't. Artistic license is always applied to these to make it sound appealing and interesting. But you can do that too. You can apply your own artistic license, be flamboyant with it, enjoy what tasting notes. So if you smell green apple, is it a green apple on a summer's day or is it a green apple in the middle of winter? Is it a green apple juiced down? Is it a green apple that's been cooked in an apple pie? I mean, there's lots of different ways to kind of draw on those small little flavors that you might pick out. Now, being a classic Speyside whiskey, I'd say there's definitely some green apple in there. Yeah, I was going to, as soon as I smelt it, I thought it just smells like apple juice. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) There really is an art form to properly tasting whiskey. Have you ever been in a situation where you're pretending you know how to properly taste whiskey or wine or whatever, but are you just totally winging it? Professionally, I should say no, but yeah, I've definitely been in that situation for both wine and whiskey. Now I've drank more different kinds of whiskey, I'm getting a bit better with the tasting notes and how it smells, for example. And this does help with wine, but I'm not quite there yet with wine. So it's worth persevering with. Blair Bowman's advice on how to change your palate was really good. Whilst we have mentioned lockdown and the rise of home cooking, I also think it's so important to support your local businesses at this difficult time. Many businesses have had to shut their doors because they can't run at full capacity with restrictions in place. On this series of Scran, we worked on four episodes in collaboration with Scotland Food and Drink on their campaign, The Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight, where two weeks are dedicated to supporting local businesses across Scotland. I love chatting with all the local business owners, but if I had to pick one of my favourites from that campaign, it was Jill Clark of Highland Cornage Cheese, an award-winning family-owned organic cheesemaker which started 15 years ago on a farm in the Highlands close to the Murray Firth. Here she is talking about the trend of cheese wedding cakes. To go back to the cheeses, um, people have started having cheese wedding cakes. Is that something that you kind of provide? Oh, yes. We Apart from this year, we've only done one this year, but we normally do at least about 30 or 40 a year obviously a trend at the moment, which is a lovely trend. But I think fruit cakes uh, for wedding cakes is terribly expensive. So the cheeses now um, have taken over, thank goodness. And it gives the people a little bit, that gives the wedding couple a little bit more of a, a scope on what they can have for their wedding. And you, you can make it kind of fit the wedding theme and it's, it's not just like, oh, there's some cheese. Yeah. They can look quite nice. Well, we, we get the, the bride and groom come in. We choose the ones that they like, but also we've got in the back of our minds uh, colours to match the wedding colours, the flowers. Uh, we have designs in mind for them. Um, some are sort of a little bit off the planet. Other ones are quite traditional with, with Scottish uh, tartan ribbon around the, the cheeses with different colours, different flowers, different fruits. So it's lovely. We get a lot of good feedback and lots of lovely photos. I do love a bit of cheese. Would you eat a cake made out of cheese, Caitlin? 
No, I'm definitely more of a sweet tooth kind of person. Cheesecake, perhaps. I think I could probably eat a, a cheese, actual cheesecake. <laughs> Whilst we're chatting about local business, Caitlin, I know you write a lot about local businesses for the Scotsman and Edinburgh Evening News. What local businesses have you tried to support over lockdown and why do you think it's so important to do? There's a number of local businesses in Edinburgh that have been supporting over lockdown, but there's one particular one that springs to mind. When there was a shortage of, of things like bread and such in the supermarkets, we were getting bread delivered from a, a wholesale bakery down in Swanfield in Edinburgh called Le Petit Francais. They typically send all their stuff to, to restaurants and things, but with lockdown and restaurants being closed, they weren't able to, to give them to the hospitality industry, so they were just selling them for delivery. Um, so we got loads and loads of bread, some delicious sourdoughs, quiches, and that was probably the main one that we used. And I told some of our colleagues about it as well who were who were ordering from there also. I think it's really important to support local businesses, especially now, because at the end of the day, we're we're all in the same situation together. We're lucky enough that we are still working, but there's a lot of people who their businesses, their livelihood, and they've had to close their doors. So trying to put more money back into the economy and, and with local businesses is, is so important. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's been a really weird and tough time for a lot of people. Some of my local purchases include shopping online for food with Remain Cam, who are actually based in Edinburgh, but they did delivery to Glasgow. I get, still get my fruit and veg box delivery from Lochavor, and I've been buying more veg from Ashby's, which is just down the road from me, and occasionally treating myself to Glasgow's best burger from El Pero Negro. I'll need to try it. It's <laughs> so good. <laughs> that's all we have time for in this episode of Scran thanks to you for listening and thanks to Caitlin for joining me it's been nice having someone to host with for a change thanks for having me it's been really fun all of the clips on this episode have been on previous episodes of Scran which are still available on all major podcasting platforms you can download Scran wherever you get your podcasts but for exclusive interactive and immersive content you can download the Intel app Scran is a logical production, presented and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Marvin McIntyre.